Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, and part two of our conversation with Paul Begg. We ended part one of our chat discussing the A to Z, and it wasn't too long after the publication of the first edition, less than a year, I believe, that you were first told about the discovery of the journal purportedly written by James Maybrick, in which he reveals himself to be Jack the Ripper. How did you first hear about the Maybrick Diary? Uh, the That had come about because uh, Mike Barrett had, uh, who, who uh, was, I don't quite know how to describe Mike, uh, he'd, he'd come up with the diary. He'd, he'd been, according to him, had been given it by uh, a man he knew from the pub. And Mike had taken this document to a literary agent, and the literary agent had put it into the hands of uh, one of her authors, and it had in due course been um, put out to, to pub- made aware, publisher had been made aware, one of whom was Robert Smith, um, and he was very interested in it, and he were asked, Keith to, uh, to 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 take a look at it. He he and Keith knew one another because um, he'd been responsible for publishing uh, when he was working for uh, Sidgwick and Jackson. The publishers had been responsible for publishing the Ripper Legacy, which Keith had written with Martin Howells. So that's how Keith became involved. Keith asked for Martin, and then Keith and Martin thought they'd bring me in um and uh, so that's how i i became involved uh and i still remember to this day i i used to take my uh daughter to um to uh, gym lessons i think on a on a saturday and i'd sit for an hour to wait for her and i i remember the the package with the with, with the uh, photocopy of the diary in it arriving in the post that morning, and I took it with me to the uh, to the uh, to the gym and sat and read it whilst my daughter was in doing her doing her stuff, and thought, "What a load of rubbish this is," which I think I noted on the envelope. The Maybrick diary was kind of a unique situation in that where it seems like everybody who is anybody within the field of ripperology had a pretty strong opinion about the thing you know you had martin fido commenting on it yourself keith skinner melvin harris rumbelow i'm sure had had a few things to say about it and he actually confronted uh barrett um at the cloak and dagger club and then you had other folks who were unknown at the prior to the Maybrook Diary, who entered the world of Ripperology, like Paul Feldman. We we kind of view the, the Maybrook Diary years in Ripperology as a really tumultuous time when friendships were broken and people, you know, people stopped talking to each other and, and stuff like that. Can you kind of take us back to give us a, a sense of what kind of impact did the emergence of this diary have on this group? Uh, relatively small uh, of ripperologists who were, you know, active in the the late eighties and early nineties. Well, I think the, the initially the diary didn't generate um, a, a a lot of ill feeling because very very few people knew about it. Uh, Keith Martin and myself were. Uh, effectively silenced by a non-disclosure agreement, so uh, which was understandable because obviously uh, money was being was now being invested in this thing, in as much as people were paying for uh, you know professional uh, invest scientific investigation, and those that was not coming cheap, so. Uh, Nobody wanted people talking about it. We really, I think, the thing all started to go pear-shaped 
with uh, with Paul Feldman, and not necessarily for Paul's fault. He was a businessman, and uh, he'd been responsible uh, for the film about the craze. He'd done a documentary about them, and then been he'd sort of uh, been the inspiration for the film about the the, the Cray twins. Uh, and, and he wanted to go on and do another East End-based project. And he organised, uh, invited uh, Keith and myself to go for uh, lunch. And uh, uh, he, was, he, was, he was principally interested at that time in, in taking an option on The Ripper Legacy, which was the book Keith and Martin uh had done and uh that's martin howells obviously not martin fighter and um so he he was uh was thinking about doing that and it was suggested that he really actually contact robert smith um because um i'm struggling here to remember the precise sequence of events but uh it was if paul was going to be spending all this money on a documentary and it was going to be blown out of the water any right. second by the maybrick diary that seemed to be a little bit unfair to to paul feldman who was sort of slightly a bit more advanced with his project than uh, than it was comfortable really uh and and so keith very very honestly was the one who was most concerned about this because even though it was Feldy who was going to be buying an option on Keith's book. So uh, Keith's honesty, I think, has got to be commended uh, on this point. Um, anyway, he uh, he didn't know. He, he was informed about the diary, but he didn't know who had written it. And I'm not quite sure how he put the clues together, but he... I think he initially believed it was Druitt, if I remember correctly. Well, he was, he was keen to go for Druitt anyway, because he, that, that's why he'd optioned um, uh, Keith and, and Martin Howell's book. But in any event, he, he worked out that it was Maybrick, and at that point he made an F he bought the television and film rights uh, to it. And then, uh, then things started to go really wrong and get out of hand because obviously there were extremely large amounts of money being involved here. If they were talking about uh, a Hollywood option on, on uh, the, uh, on the book and, and things of that kind. But the worst part of it really was when Melvin Harris became involved because Melvin Harris uh, completely uh, dismissed the, the reality of, uh, of, the, of the diary. He didn't believe that it was genuine at all. Now, Paul did, and Paul had uh, his own particular reason why he believed that the, uh, that the diary was genuine. And... Um, he told me that once when we were returning from Liverpool, uh, where we'd been for a meeting with Mike Barrett and so forth. And um, to Paul, that was a very, his reason was a very good reason for, for believing the diary. But he and Feldman, uh, sorry, Feldman and uh, Melvin Harris just did not hit it off in any way, shape or form. And, and suddenly the entire thing split. And as I've repeatedly said, the awful thing about those days was that you had two people working towards the same, to, to, towards a common end, which was to uh, authenticate or otherwise the, 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 the diary. And yet they were, working apart and disliking one another. And it was almost as if, 
you had to be partisan one side or the other. And you either had to be, if you were with Feldman, you were a believer. And if you were with Harris, you weren't a believer. And, and it was very hard to walk that walk between the two. And I kept saying at the time things like, well, what if this was an old forgery? What if? Uh, but but that, those were just what ifs. <laughs> I wasn't offering a, a theory. Uh, and and really, it was that division, I think, which um, which started to cause uh, a lot of uh, problems. And it, it isn't it. Um, so you and Keith were um, hired by the publisher, correct? Shirley Harrison. So so it's like it's almost like you guys were in one team. And Paul Feldman was the outsider who just assembled his own team. Um, well, actually, it, it kind of split a little bit differently to that. What happened was was that because I lived in Leeds and I wasn't really on on ground, so to speak, uh, I was working along with with with, uh, with Martin and Keith and myself worked uh, to help Shirley Harrison. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, by default then Robert Smith because obviously he was her publisher and then Feldy came along and Feldy actually hired me to work with with him and and Keith as well and and Martin really so we were in, we were working for both sides uh, Shirley Harrison and and Feldman uh, which was difficult because, again, there, there was a degree of ill feeling between those two camps as well. And again, this is because Feldman was able to secure uh, uh, the movie rights That's to, right. to um, the book um, prior to it even being published, right? Yeah. Um, via Robert Smith. Yes. Um so, so there was, uh, just so our listeners understand, and I'm sure that there are a lot of listeners out there who are like Martin Fido, who don't, don't find any interest in, in even discussing the Maybrick diary. <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, of the opposite opinion. Yeah. I find it pretty fascinating because I, I'm interested in, in, in the, in, um, the history of Ripperology. Um, so you had, uh, so you had Shirley Harrison, you Keith and Martin um, working to, um, on to uh, trying to authenticate it or not um, on the book publishing side, and then Paul, you Keith and Martin, kind of du dupl duplicating your work in a sense for the movie rights side of it. Well, it was almost duplicating uh, our work, except, of course, that um, Shirley and Paul were working towards a common end in as much as they both believed uh, in the genuineness of the diary. Now, Paul Feldman, uh, for reasons of his own, believed that the diary implicitly believed that the diary was genuine. Shirley... Uh, being a journalist of um, unusually clear-thinking journalist, she believed after a while that it was genuine because of information that had come her way. What was happening was, of course, is that nobody was shaking this document and proving it to be uh, fake. Now, People nowadays can look back and, and think how naive and everything people were. And I think I think uh, we certainly were. I, I didn't have any great degree of knowledge about the, the tricks and techniques of forging a document and what's always been at the back of my mind are things like whether or not I would have even considered forging a document. I, how, how do you do that? is the question that, that I ask. Now, it might be perfectly obvious to people who've done research into that area, but to me, I didn't know. So therefore, that was something that would have to be researched out. And 
and that made me begin to worry about why people were, were was was Mike Barrett capable of doing all of that kind of things, both in terms of intelligence and and everything, which I'm I'm sure he was perfectly capable of reading books and and understanding things, and also in terms of temperament. And I, and, I kind of yeah, and, and Barrett didn't help. I, the situation at all um, by um, confessing and then retracting and 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 you know his marriage was on the rocks at the time and so there's slight vindictiveness going on but um, with him directed towards his wife and I mean it's like it's this like terrible confluence of um, events it's like a soap opera <laughs> yeah and now, and now you have um, folks, um, you know, to this day, uh, uh, as you know, um, debating, you know, uh, the word processor, uh, the books he checked out at the library, the diary that he it, he admitted to have uh, purchased at an auction, um, the ad he put in for the, for a diary, you know, all these things, um, people here in 2022 can look back over and pick apart with a fine tooth comb and and have the time to do research it must have just been insane being there at the time and going through these uh, events uh, in real time especially when it comes to barrett mike i remember the first time i ever met mike and uh, we'd driven uh Paul Feldman and I had driven down to Liverpool. Now, Paul had a top-end Porsche car, Porsche car, uh, which was really, you know, a kind of posh car then. Still is. And we'd driven down to Liverpool. Um, car, Paul's car is relevant. Mike Barrett lived in a long street as I remember of, of what we call back-to-back -back houses and um, uh, in, in a street called Goldie Street and went inside in his house and there, so he parked this Porsche outside and would go in and I felt for, for Mike Barrett because here's a guy who he knows to be to all intents and purposes, a movie producer who has driven down to see him all the way from London. He's parked this super duper car outside the house and <laughs> we've all gone into his house. And we've, we've sat down in front of uh, the in, in his little living room in front of, of in front of a fire and when I say little living I'm not trying to um, diminish Mike in any way I, I'm just trying to say that it was just a normal ordinary terraced uh, house and nothing grand and nothing special and I remember Mike telling me uh, with, with candid honesty it was just insofar as I can judge honesty that when I asked him what he hoped to, to get from this he, he said he just hoped that he would be able to make enough money to buy a small greenhouse for his garden and that's the extent to, to of his vision he didn't see beyond that so he wasn't hoping to make millions or loads and loads of money he just seemed to want a couple of hundred quid to to get a greenhouse and he he didn't have a huge garden so it would have been a relatively small greenhouse just something where he could grow a few tomatoes and stuff and when we went out to lunch um his young daughter wanted to ride with us in in the porsche and i know um Feldman says something in his book about me giving giving uh, the, the daughter a grilling of a question, but I, mean, I only asked a couple of times, like, 
do you remember your dad coming back from the pub with the with the book which she did and so there were those confirmatory elements um, that she, where she confirmed Mike's story now there was obviously some undercurrent going on at the time with the with their relationship with the marriage at that time uh, looking back of course it was uh, they were trying to to put the thing right again it was it was uh, obviously that they'd had problems and they they were looking to try to repair the marriage later after uh, Anne had left him, Mike used to ring me very late at night and very drunk. And he, you would hear a clink of a bottle against a glass and he was assuring me, this is just Lucasade, which was my attempt at drunkenly saying, this is just Lucasade. Uh, and um, he would just, they would just, he would just, pour out this stream of hatred for Paul Feldman, who he thought responsible for for uh, taking Anne away from him. And I'm totally convinced, I was convinced then and I'm convinced now that um, if he could have done something to shaft Paul Feldman at that time, then he would have done. And he didn't, and he didn't have the, and I don't think he had the wherewithal to do it. So they were just you, you. You just had to. I'm grateful that I met Mike. You know, I'm, I, I can I can draw upon my own personal memories of him and uh, and the way I saw him just speed downhill and so forth was just I become such a mess at the end. But um, at that point, he. I, I'm glad that I've had the had those meetings, and I. I think it is important that we try to establish uh, where he got that book from, because I'm not entirely convinced, like other people are, that Mike Barrett created it. Um, does anyone, John or Ali, have any questions about the Maybrook Diary? I don't know. It's interesting to me the comment about the um, the just wanted a little greenhouse. I've never believed that Mike Barrett or Ann Graham or Tony, um, Deborah. Thank you. Um, I've never believed, like, in my opinion, like I never thought that, that, that sort of if, and I don't know if they, you know, I, I believe that it was in house, um, someone in their circle, uh, uh, forged it. But I'd always thought like, I, I really did believe in my heart of hearts that it wasn't like they never expected it to be the kind of circus that it was kind of a thing. So it kind of makes it more realistic to me that they, oh, I'm going to do this little thing. It's going to get me a few hundred quid. It's not like, I don't like, I don't think somebody forges something like that expecting it. Like they weren't forging a Picasso. You know what I mean? They weren't forging uh, whoever forged it. You know, they weren't forging, uh, you know, a, a master painting. They, I don't think whoever forged it expected it to become sort of this contentious um, thing that it became. And I think they sort of found themselves in a oh sugar moment of like not really expecting the scrutiny that it got kind of a thing was always my opinion. Oh yeah. That's uh, my opinion. With, not, uh, you know. Yeah. Guys driving up to their house in Porsches who have bought the movie rights and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. You know, like really, if you think about it, like for us, you know, we're in it. So it, it like people always, you know, when, when, when they talk about like, Oh, ripperology or like our big enemy or, or in ripperology, like the ripperologists are attacking me or this, that, or the other thing. I'm always like, who do you think actually really cares about this? Like nobody really, like outside of our group, nobody really cares about this. So I don't think anybody who is like, if, if you go up and ask, like I have loads of friends who are not in any way involved in this. And you, if you, if I went up and I asked them about the Maverick diary, you know, they, they have no clue what I'm talking about. You know, they're, they're not going to know. Um, so this idea that there's this like big outside appreciation of our little petty dramas is 
non-existent. And especially like 20, 30 years ago, whatever, like nobody, nobody thinks these things, they're, they're, they're tempest in a teapot kinds of things. But if you're in the teapot, when the tempest is going on, it seems like a much bigger deal than it is. Um, but, but, but that's kind of it. So I truly believe whoever forged the diary never expected to get the kind of attention that they got. And right, rightly so. I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, um, there is no such thing as like the Ripperology gravy train that we hear so much about. Um, I wish that was. (laughs) So, so that's, that's a one aspect of, uh, that's something about the Maybrick diary that makes it so compelling is that it is one of these rare instances when something that arises in the Rupert world could possibly be worth uh, quite a bit of money. And and movie, you know, we have Hollywood remaking um, The Lodger over and over again. We don't have people coming in and swooping up movie rights for... for <laughs> I mean, Patricia Cornwell has probably made the most money out of anybody off of Jack the Ripper, but it's not because of Jack the Ripper. It's because she's Patricia Cornwell, Cornwell, you know, she had a built in, I think. Yeah. And I was going to say, she's also outlaid the most amount of money. So I don't know what her, I do not know what her net profit is, but she didn't make that profit because of Jack the Ripper. She made it because she's Patricia Cornwell and she has a built in audience of people who would buy her books you know she she had millions of readers she, who would have bought anything she wrote you know so she's probably made the most out of everyone but again it's because of who she is not because of the subject matter yeah i do want to talk about patricia cornwell but before we go on um to her um i do have one more question about this uh, era of the maybrook diary that we're talking about and um that's the the cloak and dagger club emerged right around the same period of time. And and as anyone who listens to Rippercast knows, you know, we've been able to release a lot of Maybrook Diary uh, related recordings recorded from the Cloak and Dagger Club as these events were transpiring. Now, I know you you lived in Leeds still at the time, right? That they That's the, right, yeah. The meeting. So were you able to go down and, and attend very many Cloak and Dagger Club meetings or... Was it kind yeah, of something I, separate from what? I remember getting uh, the phone call um, from the guy who founded the uh, the, the club, and uh, before he'd uh, Mark, um, that's oh dear, what's his name? Mark Mark, 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 Mark. Galloway. That's right, that's the fella. Uh, yes, <laughs> I remember getting the. Uh, getting the phone call from Mark Galloway, um, who, with a group of other people, uh, founded the, the Cloak and Dagger Club. And he rang to say and told me what they were planning to do. And I really didn't have much thought that this would uh, that, that this would actually come about. I don't think there'd be sufficient people who'd be interested enough to go to a club like that and, and listen to people talk about the ripper so when he asked me if i would uh, be one of the, the the first speakers i i agreed because i didn't think anything was going to come of it uh how wrong you can be um and it did and i think i think paul feldman was probably the first speaker i'm not sure whether i was the second or the third but i i was there to see see uh, each of uh, those talks uh, it wasn't the most ideal location. I think I, uh, I was, uh, I talked from behind a pillar, which uh, may or may not have been a good thing, uh, that most people couldn't see me at all. So I was just this disembodied voice. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 the, the Cloak and Dagger Club took off, uh, very well and it became, uh, somewhere that I, used to make my regular pilgrimage down to London uh, whenever I possibly could uh, for the Cloak and Dagger Club meetings. Um, what was the subject of your talk, and do you happen to have a recording of it? Uh, <laughs> Ooh, trying to get that. <laughs> can't remember, and uh, no. Oh. I, I've got no idea what it was I, I spoke on. 
It was probably something like, I, I almost certainly would have been something like Kosminski, I, I think, because that's what I would have been asked mm-hmm. to talk about. So um, it would almost certainly have been that. Um, since you uh, name-dropped Kosminski, um, I do have a couple of Kosminski-related questions, if we can just go ahead and get these out of the way. Okay, so Adam Wood asks... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, not about uh, you owing him a beer, but um, the very first time we spoke, says Adam, via email back in 1993, I asked you if you have got any further in your research into Martin Kosminski, whom you mentioned in the facts as being of interest to you. As I uncovered a link to Martin's family via Samuel to Sergeant James Naren, I think is how you might pronounce his name. Is it Nen? Okay, N-E-A-R-N. Yeah. Yeah. Who was seconded to the Whitechapel murder investigation following the House to House and who later received a pipe commemorating his work on the case that was inscribed from six brother officers. Do you still feel Martin Kosminski to be of importance in discovering the identity of Swanson's Kosminski? Or are you now more swayed towards Aaron? Oh, oh dear. Yeah, and, that, and I'm not quite... Maybe you can um, flesh that question out a little bit because I, I'm i not sure what he's going on about, necessarily. Uh, I'd like to say neither does probably Adam. Uh, but I'm sure he does. Uh <laughs> In which case, he's, I, I'm grateful to him. Uh, I wish I was up to speed uh, with the the, the Nen uh, question. Uh, but I can say about about Martin Kosminski uh, is is that basically, um, I'm sure that there there has to be a, a connection and a link here, in here somewhere along the line. Uh, it's just that it is also vague and and difficult to put together that I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure uh, that, that I can really comment on it at any length because I'm not entirely sure what Adam's asking me. Well, I wasn't sure either and I should have clarified but um, so is he saying that this James Nern is that how you're pronouncing it? Yeah, it's James William Nen. Is uh, somehow re- is is related to the Kosminski family? Right. I that if that's in his uh, in Adams uh, Swanson book, I think it's somewhere along the line. It's uh, it's escaped my attention, so I'm I'm not sure. But I'm not clear how even if he is related. Uh, I'm not clear, clear what that significance would be. So um, I think I'll, I'll have to pass on on Adam's question for now, and then come back to it at some point when I <laughs> when I know what he's talking about, which sounds awful, but I don't don't mean it to be. But uh, that's the best I can do. I think that's okay. And and one other uh, Kosminski question, which you might not really have a clear answer for either. Um, is for Karsten is from Karsten Geese, who is from Germany, and they ask. It seems Kosminski never confessed the crimes, although there were many circumstances connected with this man which made him a strong suspect. Quoting and quote identification which suspect knew, and he knew he was identified. Mm. Des- despite the strong evidence, he was able to keep his mouth shut. What does that mean to you today, and what might it tell you about his personality? Well, I don't. This is one of those areas where we we really, really know far too little. Right. Um, we don't. We know that at various times he was obviously a very lucid when when uh, he was he was. Uh, Asked to give evidence over the uh, the dog case, uh, 
uh, if you remember, um, about an unmuzzled dog, which was a very dangerous thing at the time. Um, but he uh, he was very lucid when he gave evidence, and yet we have somebody who's wandering the streets and taking food out of the gutters and so forth. So we don't really quite know how, well, we don't really know very much about him at all, really. So we don't know what he would have been able to say or do. There's the remark uh, in the Swanson document that, uh, to the effect that uh, when he was identified and sub suspect knew he'd been identified. So obviously he reacted to it in some way or was it told or whatever. Um, but we but, don't, we, we aren't told, you know, what his reaction was. We're not, you no. know, we're not even, you know, if it had said, you know, and he strenuously denies it, then that would make a big difference, right? Absolutely, and and so of course the thing is is that one assumes that he he didn't strenuously deny it, uh, because it would presumably have been mentioned in somewhere if that had been the case. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe it would have. Whether he was able to strenuously yeah. deny it or not. Yeah, or maybe it would have, or the officers would just, well, of course he denies it. Everyone, and all criminals deny it. So maybe yeah. a, a strong denial from Kosminski wouldn't have necessarily been notable because in their line of work, everybody accused of everything is going to deny it. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, we, we just... The information isn't there, and mm -hmm. therefore we just have to try and uh, do the best that we can with what we have got, and that is that we are that the police at the time, irrespective of how he reacted to it, if indeed he reacted to it at all, uh, it, all we know is that the police at the time, or at least Anderson and presumably Swanson, uh, agreed that uh, he looked... It looked uh, all sort of um, above board and that they'd got their man. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, Ali uh, brought up Patricia Cornwell um, a few minutes ago. And um, I know you've probably gone over this um, with us in other podcasts, but one of the things about you is you're such a, um, a frequent contributor to Rippercast that you say things in in some podcasts and then and then it's not all collected in one place basically is what i'm saying yeah um so, yes yeah, so it just boringly repeats the same time no, i'm not saying Tired that but, over and over again but you know if if uh if a listener is interested in in um how you might um uh, how how your association with patricia cornwell came about they wouldn't necessarily know to go listen to the podcast with Tom Westcott. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yes, uh, yes. When you mention when you when you might you know bring it up. So um, even though it, you might have said this uh, half a dozen times on our show already, um, uh, remind us how you were approached um, by Patricia Cornwell or her people because she might have people, Allie, um, to. Uh, get involved in her research into her uh, Walter Sickert book. Yeah. Why did she point that one to me? <laughs> because you were she saying how much, <laughs> because she would also not only be the one who's made the most money, but she might also be the only uh, Ripper author who actually has people. Oh, that's true. I like to think I have people, but they never do what I tell them to. So <laughs> really, it's not effective. <laughs> well, the, the, the um, Again, it, it's 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 all Keith's fault, really. Um, <laughs> he, Keith had approached uh, Patricia uh, after Patricia's first book was published, and just offered um, what assistance he could. Patricia was 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 very uncertain about whether or not to respond to to Keith because she'd heard horrible stories about uh, how nasty ripperologists were. And 
Keith, um, so but but she did respond, and Keith uh, began to offer help and so forth, and began to work for her. Uh, and there was a time when she came over to to London, and Keith was very keen that she meet some other ripperologists and find out that we weren't all weird. And so, of course, naturally, he he thought of me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to show that I'm not weird, uh, and and Robin O'Dell, who of course is the gentleman of of ripperology, and so we met with Patricia and uh, at, at um, the National Archives, and um, we we chatted and and so forth, and I I I was sort of uh, a bit wary, I must admit. Uh, as well, because I had, I think, previously met. I'm trying to remember. There was an event that had been taken place where, uh, there, where when Patricia was over here, and um, uh, I can't remember why everybody was invited to go, but we managed to get a book signed by her, and and we, I think, I'd met briefly at that point. And that was a time when she came across and she had her minders with her still, which all seemed a little extreme to me. But nevertheless, um, I never managed to find out what story she'd been told about ripperologists, really, to make her feel that she was that much threatened. Although I subsequently did did hear a number of other things that had happened to her, so she and and, uh, her members of her family which made me understand why she had these people around. Uh, but nevertheless, um, we met, we, we, we got on, we, we had dinner. I'm conscious that all the time I've been talking about this is everybody I meet, we had dinner. Paul Feldman, publishers. Anyway, I did have dinner with, uh, with, with Patricia and um, uh, we ended up working quite closely together and um, she then hired me to sort of do the best I could on the book to, 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 to basically fact check to make sure that she didn't make any mistakes like putting a little pretty garden and a picket fence around Han- the house in Hanbury Street. Um, so obvious things that, that uh, mistakes that could be made and so forth. Um, and uh, we then had numerous meetings at, at various times, and um, that's basically how I was involved with, with Patricia. Now, this, I is like- the, this is the first time I've heard that I recall it being said that sh- she um, and her family had received threats um, from ripperologists. No, is that what I you're saying? That. I, I said that I had uh, that she she had heard stories about how awful ripperologists were. Um, somewhere it's supposed to be from some FBI or CIA friends of right. hers said, told her that the ripperologists are lying in wait or something. I right. vaguely remember that kind of, of stuff being said. Yes, I never quite established precisely what was said to her or, or what it was what or who by or, okay. and why uh but um i just saying that on that very first meeting before uh, before keith and everything when she was over here for something or other and we had a sort of question and answer session with her and then had some books signed she didn't appear, uh, didn't join in with, with anything. She just suddenly appeared and then did what she had to do and then disappeared. I think it was prior to a, uh, a theatrical thing where she w- was giving a talk in a London theatre um, that evening. And Okay, I thought you had meant that she has, subs- she has subsequently told you that her, fa- her family had received threats. Yes, she... she- I, I just going on to say that not from ripperologists and not necessarily to do with anything to do with uh, with Jack the Ripper, but I was just saying that 
uh, it always seemed ex extreme to me, though, because she, when, when she was at that theatre thing, she had minders, and I have been with her when she has had, when she has got minders. Right. Uh, in fact, I've, I've been in the car with the minders and chatted. But uh, and it always seems to seem to me to be, uh, you know, a bit silly to have minders. But she explained to to, to my wife and I uh, some things that had happened to her and members of her family. Oh, okay. Uh, Out, also outside of the the were, okay that were worrying. It wasn't Ripper necessarily Ripper related. Well, there was a whole thing. I mean, it was public knowledge back in the day. I mean, I'm not going to go in. It's not, you know, relevant to our situation. But there was a whole bunch of stuff back in the day. It was in the papers and stuff where there was a whole series of issues that was going on with her, like court cases and whatnot. And oh, yeah. She had a stalker and all kinds of, of stuff. So, but I just wanted um, to make make yeah. it clear that that she that whatever prompted her to have bodyguards when she traveled to the UK wasn't um, because of a credible threat from the, the, the Ripperology community against her. No, I don't think there was any sort of credible threat uh, from the Ripperology people. And yeah, because uh, I remember I, that I mean, time. It would have you know, been. It would have been. It would have been ridiculous to to suppose that. As oh that yeah, is. because our our complaints, as usual, were limited to the echo chamber that is the message boards, <laughs> and it, yeah. and, it, and it would have surprised me if I, any one of us uh, would have taken the an extra step of actually doing something as crazy as. Um, you know, making a threat against her or her family. I think I was the most credible threat, honestly, because I lived like right around the corner from her in Virginia at the time. So like I would have been the greatest threat to Patricia Cornwell and I'm just entirely too lazy to like bother. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry. I need to be serious when we're talking about threats and ripperology. I know, but it's such a ridiculous like concept that I really can't be arsed. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, <clears throat> as we've seen, um, without naming any names. Yeah. You know, Ripperologists rip can be accused of all sorts of mean and nasty things. But, um, you know, I, we're, we're too, I would hope that we're all pretty um, intelligent enough not to, you know, uh, make yeah, any... I'm going to risk my freedom to take out an author. Ooh, I really feel that strongly about it. <laughs> well, Authors. I, yeah. They're the it, enemy. Yeah, it's but, ridiculous. For the benefit of the CIA or the National Security Agency monitoring this, uh, this Skype call, <laughs> Ali is joking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am entirely joking. <laughs> I think the, 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 the trouble is that... Um, as I've often said, said well, I seem to have said everything quite often, uh, is that ripper, ripperology is is a stupid term. Uh, it has grown and been accepted, um, and but ripperologists are not a collected group of people. We are we are people who share a common interest in in Jack the Ripper in, and in various things and aspects of the case and we people move in and out of ripperology all the time it is a ever-changing uh group of people oh, there's yeah. a hard, and even then i mean i think it can be people absolutely i, mean, I think I it, it can the, be even more narrowed down than that like i uh one of the questions that was posed to you on the message boards um which I don't really um, think is you necessarily have to answer, but but the premise of it was um, uh, Charles Cross, aka Lechmere, since he's one of the main suspects of the Ripper murders now, um, and I was just like, is he? Um, and and the and then the response was like, well, yeah, I mean he when there's a Facebook poll, he's like number two. I, and, and I'm just like, okay, well, 
A ripperologist isn't someone who's seen a documentary and then joins a Facebook group. That does not make you a ripperologist. A ripperologist isn't someone who who might have a contrary, who might post a, a review, a negative review of your book. Um, take, you know, I mean, I mean, if that's, if we're calling everybody basically that, that ever, even, even once shares an opinion on the Jack the Ripper case, suddenly a ripperologist, then, you know, it's like there, there's, there's as many ripperologists as there are, you know, snowflakes the, on my ground. The trouble is that there's no, well, there is, but there, generally speaking, there is no strict definition of what a ripperologist is. Right. It was created solely to really by Colin Wilson in 1970 to um, describe those people who ventured theories about the Ripper's identity. Mm-hmm. Now, when Colin was writing in 1970, when he first said that, uh, the number of people who were doing that were very few and far between. Right. Uh, there may have been a lot of people that he didn't know about who were doing it, but as we've said, there was no internet or or anything else. Yeah. Um, you. So, it, it in many respects, Colin did the worst thing to to ripperology right. by coming up with that name but then of course at that stage it was uh you know it was quite popular with ufo people called ufologists and so forth um it just gives a spurious credibility to the subject which um, which is to be regretted but we're stuck with it now and and that's it mm-hmm. but basically i i mean i think that probably anybody could be called a ripperologist if even the person who expresses one opinion on one of the message boards might be described as a ripperologist how do you define an interest in the subject and one of the great things about the subject is that it is open to anybody and everybody it doesn't matter you don't have to have academic qualifications and degrees and PhDs and become a doctor or whatever you it's just open to anybody and and indeed anybody can make a discovery that uh, of some sort that that will advance or or change the way that we perceive the subject so it's it's open to anybody and everybody and that, but by the same token when uh, when we don't want anybody and everybody to venture opinions, uh, there's not an awful lot we can do about it. So we we w- will get people who will make crass, stupid, idiotic comments, and we will get people who will make very intelligent and perceptive comments. And they then, are ripperologists, and we get all lumped together. And Patricia Cornwell would deny that she's a ripperologist. So so it's like. It's convenient for one, for someone to just to do something, a book like Patricia Cornwell's, for example, and have that deniability of being ripperol, a ripperologist, but yet, yet attach that label on the flip side to someone who created a fake a Facebook account and makes just one comment on on a message board. You know what I'm saying? There's a there's it's like um, it's almost well, like the, I, the, I, the, I, which I, I guess argue. goes back to your ter- that the term is just meaningless essentially. I would argue that Patricia is a ripperologist. Right. I mean, Drew Gray uh, at one point uh, maintained that he wasn't a ripperologist, and I said, "You are," and he said, "No, I'm not." And I said, "Well." You teach Jack the Ripper as part of uh, of your your course. You've written a book about it. You've written articles. You've reviewed books on it. You've done research. What else do you have to do to be called a Ripperologist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like I have a friend who uh, 
I had an argument where it's it's about like you object to the terminology because you associate negative characteristics with the word, wherein you are the term you just associate. Like I have a friend who believes in Christian, like she believes all the embodiments of Christianity, and like she believes you know Jesus is the savior and and all of that, but she thinks Christianity is like such a negative like pejorative because she associates with bad acts like the negative press. If I'm like you're a Christian. You can call it what a Jesus Christ follower or whatever, but it's like that is what you are. If the you know if, if if you if you walk that, if you do like, be the best example of a ripperologist that you can be. If you if you object to it on the grounds that you think that that's an unsavory term, then change the definition of the term. Be a better example of the word instead of disavowing, you know, the term. You know what I'm saying? Like it's such yeah. an interesting thing. Like. You do all of the things, but you're like, no, 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 no. I'm not that. That's not who I am. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> the thing, I don't know. The it's, thing it's, that it's, I, I feel the way that we're going uh, now Go is ahead. that um, it's divided into two, two things. We have uh, the, the who was Jack the Ripper people who are still interested in the identity and the solution to the mystery, which is great. Um, I have no qualms with that. It, uh, Jack the Ripper was and probably always will be a mystery of identity. It isn't about some bloke going out and killing people and, uh, and killing women and mutilating women and doing things like that. It's a mystery about who he was. And that's fine. That's that's one that's one thing. But then you've got the growing field of what I would classify as ripper history, which is people who are interested in the 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 time, the place, the events, and everything else that goes with it. That's only really been um, something that has really taken off since 2000 and the publication of the, um, the, the, the official papers, the Scotland Yard and Home Office papers on the case. Um, that changed the game along with digitized newspapers and uh, sites like Ancestry and, and uh, all this, which were, you know, I've said numerous times in the past, but for the last 20 years, that's really the time when we have seen the growth in in history, uh, the Ripper Ripper history. Now these two, these are two entirely different um, areas. And then there's the possibly the third area that interests me and Jonathan and some other people, which is the history of what loosely described as Ripperology itself. You know, which uh, uh, Robin O'Dell covered really in in his book uh, called Ripperology. Uh, so you you have all of these three different areas, and and of course Patricia Patricia is a ripperologist. Um, so too is Hallie Rubenhold. Um, they've written books on some aspect of the Ripper case that makes them technically a ripperologist. Uh, I think the worst part of it would be that if you started to try and define ripperology or ripperologist as somebody who knows an awful lot about Jack the Ripper, then there'd only be about half a dozen of us. And you only get to be a ripperologist if you're so sad that you spent the last 30 years on and off studying the case. <clears throat> I think um, if you, it's, it's sort of, ridiculous really to to um to pick on ripperologists and describe ripperologists as a collective it's like saying that all photographers are pornographers for example I, i'm just because there are some people who take photographs that are pornographic doesn't mean that everybody who takes photographs is a pornographer some people take photographs that are quite nice and decent. Mm -hmm. um, so it, this this blanket description that we sometimes find these days, well, the ripperologists did this or ripperologists did that. 
it could just simply be a person who happens to have an interest in Jack the Ripper did this or did that. Um, I think that if you look back over the past year or so, the number of books about Jack the Ripper that have come from mainstream publishers have been few and far between, and they've all been pretty much of the sensationist variety, like uh, the, the the book about Ed O'Shaw or um, Wynne Weston Davis's book uh, about his... Uh, ancestor and and things like this the number of serious books finding publication from mainstream publishers is uh has been pretty nearly nil and i think when you're looking ahead at the way that jack the ripper publishing is going i had hoped at one stage that um that the print-on-demand and uh, and sort of uh, ebook publications and things of that kind would lead people to start writing really good books about sub aspects of the case that uh, we uh, wouldn't have found a mainstream publisher, like like the book about the um, mortuary photographs, the mortuary photographers, and things. Really good book. Uh, minor area of, of general interest uh, should really have found a mainstream bookshop type publisher uh, didn't and has been privately published if that indication continues then the chances are that Jack the Ripper is going to shift into self-published work and my view of most self-published work is that judged in terms of oh this is a Ripper book um, you know, a good many of it, many of them are acceptable, but quite the majority really are not. And it's hard work now trying to pick up any enthusiasm for reading a self-published Jack the Ripper book when you know that it's really just going to be the same old stuff regurgitated over and over again. Um, Hopefully, I would like to see us whether we get past that in the future and that, that we start to start seeing some really worthwhile stuff. But that's does I, I don't see that happening at the moment. And unfortunately, I think that the reputation of Ripperology uh, has has taken a bit of a battering over the last couple of years, and unfairly so. We we. I mean, the idea that we we start trolling somebody is just pathetically stupid and wrong. When you have a mainstream publisher who produces a book that you believe that is wrong, and that you have a degree of authority to, behind you to be able to say that it's wrong, and the author of that book just flatly refuses to engage and and justify what they have written. Um, you know that that that's really a terrible insult to to a group of people who are interested in this subject. So I don't quite know where we're going, but I would hope, and if I have long enough left to live, I would really like to get to grips with a book that is about the history of Ripperology itself. That would be my my fourth title within the will have looked then at the at, at the beginnings and everything that's going on. I would have had a hard look at the, the facts about the case. I'd have looked at the aftermath, and then I can look at the the history from there to now and uh, uh, and and discuss that. But that that would be the way I think I would hope that Ripper studies are going. I would like to see a, a, dim, the, a, a bit of a diminishing aspect on, on the, the, the who was Jack the Ripper, the suspects aspect, because that just 
gets sillier as as time goes by. Mind you, it's never been that sensible, but half the people who put forward all of those silly theories weren't ripperologists anyway. So um, that that tends to get forgotten as well. Yeah. So I would just hope that ripperology goes goes in a, a sensible direction and we, we're able to put this nonsense stuff about our fears and things behind us. Well, I really appreciate Paul taking the time to join us for this lengthy chat. We covered a lot of ground, but I'm sure we left a lot out. So if you have listened to these two episodes and it's raised any more questions you might have for Paul or comments for any of us about what you've heard, feel free to email rippercastpodcast at gmail.com. And if we get enough of them, maybe we'll address them in an upcoming Oh Dear Boss or something like that. So comments and questions about these episodes or any episodes you've heard on the podcast um, are appreciated. And I want to thank again, Paul, John, and Allie for being here today. And thank you for listening.